0: Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Library Company of Philadelphia. Uh, good to have you all with us this evening. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Library Company, we're especially glad to have you here so that you can learn something about us. Uh, on the chairs, we have a, a brochure that tells something about our, our history and membership. and We have public programs such as this uh, pretty often throughout the year, and we're always glad to have a large audience, and we hope uh, that if this is your first time, it won't be your last with us. Uh, my name is John Van Horn. I'm the director, and in a minute I'm going to introduce the introducer of our speaker this evening. Uh, but let me draw your attention first to uh, the calendar on your chairs, which uh, has some details about some of our upcoming events and programs. Uh, in particular, we have a conference uh, April 3rd and 4th coming up in just a few weeks, uh, called Incarceration Nation: Voices from the Early American Jail, uh, and. Then in April, we're having a talk by a library company trustee, Elizabeth McLean, who recently published a book on Peter Collinson, who was a great 18th century naturalist and facilitator of communications, transatlantic about all manner of subjects. And he was also the book agent for the library company in our early decades. He was our sort of book scout in London who acquired books and shipped them back to us to start our collection in the early years. Also want to mention that we have uh, the book published uh, recently by our speaker for sale. It's at the front desk. So you're all encouraged to pick up a copy. It's, it's on sale this evening uh, at a 20% discount. And I know our speaker would be glad to uh, sign a copy for you uh, after the program. The, the talk this evening is sponsored by the Library Company's Program in Early American Economy and Society, which began almost 10 years ago now. Uh, with the mission of promoting scholarship and uh, an understanding of the nation's early American economic history, uh, and since its inception, the director of the program has been Kathy Matson, who's a professor of history at the University of Delaware, and she's done wonders getting the program off the ground and bringing it to its current state. Uh, and I want to call on Kathy this evening to introduce uh, our speaker, uh, Kathy Matson. <laughs>
1: Um, at any time you can't hear me, just wave, especially from the back there. <clears throat> I'm very delighted to introduce to you the speaker for tonight. Delighted that we could bring Mark Egnell all the way from Toronto today um, to our city of Philadelphia to talk about his latest book. Professor Egnall received his PhD from the University of Wisconsin in 1974. But his academic home for the last 30 years has been York University in Toronto, which I think must be quite hospitable, a hospitable environment for thinking and writing about North American history because the list of his achievements is very long and distinguished. Mark has received numerous research grants that recognize the significance of his work, including grants from the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Fulbright Foundation, and the Social Science and Humanities Research Council. In addition to over a dozen highly revered articles on topics that range very widely from colonial and revolutionary American economy to slavery and anti-slavery to political party development in the antebellum years he's written three monographs that have sparked lively, scholarly responses and refueled many old debates along the way about vital turning points in American history. And I want to tell you what those three uh, previous to the recent one, uh, three previous monographs are. His first monograph appeared in 1988, A Mighty Empire, The Origins of the American Revolution. In 1996, he published Divergent Paths*. How Culture and Institutions Have Shaped North American Growth. And very shortly after that, in 1998, he published New World Economies, The Growth of the Thirteen Colonies and Early Canada. Professor Egnell's brand new study, his fourth major book, the one that John was holding up, and the one that he will be talking to you about tonight, adds to these distinguished contributions and bears directly on the themes that Pease has been illuminating for, as John says, nearly 10 years now uh, with scholars and with a wider reading public. Clash of Extremes, you probably couldn't read the title from where it was held up (coughs) Um, just a minute ago. I don't see a copy here. Clash of Extremes, The Economic Origins of the Civil War. It's not a little book, as you could see, Uh, but not only in the absolute sense of it, in the physical sense, and material-cultural sense of books. Oh, thank you, thank you. As I say, a big book. Um, But in the figurative sense as well, it's very big. Because Mark challenges long-standing explanations about the coming of the Civil War that are rooted in the conflicts of sometimes the political history, the political party system history of the era, or the fundamental moral dilemma of slavery. Um, And those scholars who see either of those politics or the moral dilemma dilemma of slavery as central, um, or sometimes even the premier or the only explanation for that generation's turmoil. Mark takes us a big, bold step farther. Uh, in some ways departing from those two historiographical lineages and makes a compelling case that we should instead ground our understanding of the antebellum era on the economic interests, North and South, that gradually reached irreconcilable breaking points on the eve of what became the Civil War. Clash of Extremes takes readers through a sweeping tour of how Americans lived during one of their most transformative eras. Marx starts in the decades after 1820 when so many economic developments seemed to be extending the republic outward, westward, rapidly across space and solidifying the ties at the same time of commerce and trade manufacturing um, in, I guess metaphorically, in a more vertical um, developmental sense. From those decades after the 1820s down to the 1850s and 60s, when the collision of sectional economic interests, which were always, Mark argues, seething just below the surface anyway, shattered what was unifying about those decades previously. So I guarantee that you're gonna find The Clash of Extremes a very engaging read. Um, It's full of new insights, some small and some large, uh, some that seem to follow very clearly from an argument that he builds from chapter one to the end of the book and some of them apparently incredibly provocative, but always, always very engaging. Um, The book is also, I can tell you, um, as I I haven't quite finished it yet, but as I make my way through the book, it's laced with very colorful vignettes of people uh, whose names we would recognize from the Civil War era as well as some that we, really, we realize we really ought to know and haven't heard of before. So I think you'll agree with me that we're very, very privileged to have Mark here tonight to share some thoughts about his provocative and very significant new monograph. Mark? Okay.
2: Kathy, thank you. I have so many microphones here. If you can't hear me, it's your fault. Because <laughs> I have another mic. I don't know why we have this one, but i mic'd up. I'd like to uh, begin by thanking Kathy Madsen, director of the program in Early American Economy and Society, and John Van Horn, director of the library company. They and their support staff have been excellent in the run-up to this event. And I want to thank all of you for coming out here on an occasionally chilly, rainy day. There probably have been few times, particularly in recent years, when we've all been so aware of the sweep of American history. With the inauguration of the first African-American president, with one of the gravest crises since the Great Depression, and with the bicentennial of Lincoln's birth not many weeks ago. That's a trifecta that historians find hard to ignore. These momentous times provide a context for my remarks about the Civil War. The argument I'll present this afternoon is the same one that shapes my book, Clash of Extremes. It's this, more than any other reason, the evolution of the Northern and Southern economies Explains the sectional conflict, as I hope will become clear, clear by the end of my talk, about an hour and a half from now, <laughs> a little bit shorter than that. <laughs> understanding the Civil War sheds much light on the world that we live in. But before I present an argument about the Civil War, I want to look at the broader context. I'll first underscore why the sectional conflict remains so important. And then I'll examine how recent historians have analyzed this clash. Whether the topic is race, industrialization, politics, or more broadly, culture, the Civil War remains crucial for any understanding of the United States. Last March, Barack Obama delivered a powerful speech on race here in Philly. In it he quoted William Faulkner, The past is never dead. It's not even passed. Faulkner was right. The Civil War, which lasted in exactly four years, from April 1861 to April 1865, is not the past, certainly not in any antiquarian sense. A few years ago, I helped organize a conference in Toronto about the sectional conflict. Attending that gathering was a retired colleague of mine, a very hale non during a Q&A session, he stood up and reminded us young historians, I put myself in that category, how he had enjoyed chatting with Civil War veterans when he was a kid. Faulkner, as Obama knew, was right in another way. For Faulkner, the Civil War was the key event in the American past. And certainly no war or spate of legislation has been more important in shaping modern race relations. The Civil War ended slavery though less than Lincoln's idolaters might think, by the stroke of a president's pen and more by the efforts of African Americans themselves. And it was the era of the Civil War that after a brief, hopeful period of experimentation fixed upon the United States a near century of oppressive, apartheid-like race relations. The Civil War also laid the basis for the creation of a mighty industrial state, During the war years, Congress adopted legislation that set the stage for America's transformation from an agricultural to an industrial nation. The measures adopted included a uniform currency, a Homestead Act, a system of national banks, income tax, a transcontinental railroad, and land-grant colleges. The Civil War also reshaped politics and more broadly, much of American culture. It created a conservative, solid, deep South, which is still with us today, at least among white voters. Only the party representing that conservative South has changed from Democrat to Republican. Any persuasive analysis of the Civil War must explain these outcomes. Historians, as you might imagine, have explored a variety of causes for the sectional clash. This literature provides a context for the interpretation I'll present there have been in fact earlier economic interpretations one of the most influential was put forth in the 1920s by the historians Charles and Mary Beard although intriguing theirs was a creaky deterministic model however for the past 25 years there has been a dominant point of view if my work can be summarized in a single word economics I could just end here The prevailing approach can be reduced to a different word, slavery. James McPherson, author of The Battle Cry of Freedom, is the leading proponent of this point of view. According to this interpretation, the North was determined to end slavery, at least at some future date, while the South was resolved to preserve its peculiar institution, and the war ensued. Now, slavery, I should quickly add, gets involved in all interpretations. But for McPherson in this idealistic school, the clash is not between two economic systems, nor is it rooted in the psychology of overwrought northerners and southerners, which is another older interpretation. Rather, it comes down to idealistic beliefs, deeply held convictions for and against slavery. Most biographies of Lincoln indeed reinforce this point of view. But attractive as this idealistic interpretation might be, it is weakened by grave problems. First, it overlooks the far reaching economic goals and accomplishments of the Republicans. Let me illustrate with a few visuals. I was given uh, Nicole, where are you? I was given the clicker. it's right beside. I think it's beside this. Which Okay. So we'll take this off for the first few visuals. So these are the first few visuals. More people know about William, far more people know about William Tecumseh Sherman than his younger brother, John Sherman. William Tecumseh, who's the famous Civil War general, than John Sherman, who I'll mention, who I think is far more influential, has far greater impact on the United States. The same way, is this the uh, button? Okay, we got it. As for banks, more people know about General Nathaniel Banks than than they do about National Banks, <laughs> which were established. Nathaniel Banks is a kind of mixed bag of a general. I'm not going into military history, which some of you may know, who the villain of New Orleans. But National Banks, his Civil War buffs know about Nathaniel Banks. Um, Far more people know about Lincoln's beard than about Charles' beard. <laughs> Lincoln's beard. Lincoln grew his beard after he got elected and before. Obama should have done that, I mean, if he was following you know, Lincoln. Lincoln was beardless up until he got office, but he grew it. It's a true, true story about a young girl who, Asked him, uh, would you look nice in a beard? And he did a, Charles Beer, this famous historian, has been ignored. So this is, okay. These are, we all show some of the differences. But the economic measures adopted were not one-off items. They were part of a coherent program. The idealistic school has little to say about this important legacy of the war. Second, when the events, so that's the first problem, it overlooks economic goals. The idealistic schools. Second, when the events of these years are closely scrutinized, it's hard to see an attack on slavery as the central issue. Lincoln in the North did not take up arms with any intention of freeing the slaves. Just the opposite. Republicans swore when the war broke out that they would not disturb the peculiar institution. Leading Union generals caught slaves and returned them nor before the war did most Republicans show any interest in improving the lot of African Americans. Third, the focus on slavery doesn't explain why for so many decades the North and South were able to compromise their differences. Here a timeline is useful, and we'll take this off. It's, uh, it's the next slide, this one. This, there's a long era of compromise that takes place. Northerners, and so- Northerners condemned slavery and opposed its expansion long before a rupture seemed inevitable. But despite problems that were every bit as challenging as those the country faced after 1850, the two sections were able to work out a series of compromises between 1820 and mid-century. So during this whole long period from 1820 to 1850, I'm arguing the problems were every bit as grave as the ones that came later, but the idealistic school doesn't explain why if Americans dislike slavery they were able to compromise for so many years. So that too is a difficulty a difficulty with this school. It doesn't explain a long period of compromise. Finally, the idealistic approach doesn't explain the deep divisions within the sections. Of the 15 slave states, only seven located in the Deep South left the Union before fighting broke out. And in most of those seven states, at least 40% of the voters and sometimes half opposed immediate secession. The border states would remain in the Union even after the outbreak of war. The North was divided as well. In 1856, most Northerners backed the Republicans' opponents. And even in 1865, 45% of the Northern voters favored a candidate other than Lincoln. All these problems with the prevailing interpretation, its inability to explain the economic program, the Republican reluctance to support emancipation, the existence of a long era of compromise, and divisions within the North and South argue the need for a new approach to the causes of the Civil War. It's against that backdrop that I've developed my interpretation, which as mentioned, argues that more than any other single factor, the evolution of the Northern and Southern economies explains why the sections came to blows. The book begins by looking at the era of compromise, which stretched from 1820 to mid-century. During this period, business activity brought together the North and South for five reasons. First, trade along the Mississippi and its tributaries gave the Northwest and Southwest a shared set of interests. And uh, we go back. Okay, this is just okay. So first, trade along the. If I can get the uh, laser. Is this no? Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> okay, one, one, okay, good, okay, sorry. Okay, <laughs> by technology. Trade, the Mississippi River, which runs down here, was a link between north and south. So that's first. And Most of the trade during this period flowed south along the Mississippi, particularly once steamboats, which date from the second decade of the 19th century, come into use. Second, the border states, had strong and growing ties with the North. These states from Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri, those are the border states. Third, the growth of textile manufacturing in New England linked the mill owners and, and merchants of the North with the planters of the South. This alliance complained, Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner joined the lords of the lash and the lords of the loom. Fourth, the buoyant economy of the Southwest Reinforced the case for union. The region boasted fresh soils and high returns, as well as a deep appreciation for the role that the federal government played in pushing back Native Spaniards and Mexicans. Finally, the burgeoning economy fostered similar divisions in every state, creating the foundation for two national parties. Throughout the United States, prosperous planners farmers and businessmen, just male voters, came together to support the Whigs. At the same time, urban workers and poor farmers, individuals who felt excluded by the new exchanges, backed the Democrats. Well, the two parties battled each other vigorously over economic issues. Both had adherents throughout the country and shared a common belief in a unified nation. These shared interests allowed the North and South to work through a series of divisive sectional problems between 1820 and 1850. The first of these disputes was the Missouri Compromise, which stretched from 1819 to 1821. Deciding whether the new state of Missouri, which you can see there, would be slave or free was no less contentious than the battle over Kansas would be in the 1850s. But while the clash over Kansas is considered among the immediate causes of the Civil War, the Missouri Compromise was the opening act in a three-decade-long era of sectional deal-making. A similar array of forces helped resolve the nullification controversy of 1832-1833, as well as the clash over the reception of abolitionist petitions. In other words, the border states typically led by a politician named Henry Clay, merchants in New England, people in the southwest, the new areas. All of these people worked together despite these contentious issues. The final sectional deal of this era was the Compromise of 1850, which decided how the land acquired in the Mexican War, 1846 48 would be divided between the slave and free states. Already the centrifugal forces, which would mark the 1850s, were evident. More than ever before, outspoken groups in the North and South signaled their opposition to compromise. But this mid-century deal remained the last hurrah for individuals whose views were shaped by the five concerns that had long tied the country together. In the North, leaders from the Ohio Valley like Stephen Douglas, were strong advocates of reconciliation. The border states, once again led by Henry Clay, also pushed for compromise. The great commercial cities and their spokesmen like Daniel Webster, who represented the Boston business community, also backed conciliation. Remnants, but in this case only remnants, of Southerners who benefited from fresh soils and federal aid endorsed the deal. Sam Houston is a good of that. And finally, many party members, both Whigs and Democrats, put country before section and supported the deal. However, by the late 1840s, the economies of both the North and South were evolving. These changes helped end the era of compromise and begin a decade of conflict that culminated in the Civil War. In the North, the most important development was the reorientation of trade from its north south channel along the Mississippi to an east west axis that included the Great Lakes and Erie Canal? And there is, let's, let me see if I can get this Okay, okay. there we go. And I got the laser. The This is the Great Lakes and the Erie, the Erie Canal runs here from Buffalo to Albany across New York State actually still in use as a ship canal and then ships would go down the Hudson River so through the Great Lakes cities and then across that those living near the lakes had a peculiar set of needs which shaped their outlook there are no natural harbors on the Great Lakes if you have ever camped or vacation on the shores of one of the Great Lakes has anybody done this? (laughs) camped a couple of you have you know if you've done this You typically, when you are camping on the shores, you wade out. Uh, When I speak in Toronto about these issues, people are familiar because we're on the Great Lakes and our beaches are like that. Here we're Philadelphia's on a river, so they needed federal funds to build piers and dredge harbors, and then dig those channels out again the following year. They also needed assistance. (coughs) to open up several choke points tying up Lake Commerce, particularly the passages around Sioux St. Marie and the St. Clair Flats near Detroit. The Sioux Sioux is up here and the passages around the St. Clair Flats around Detroit. The demand for federal funds also made these individuals advocates of higher tariffs since that impost was the chief source of government revenues. Lake congressmen and their allies defended these demands by waving the banner of nationalism. But it was a nationalism based on what's good for the lakes is good for the country. Many New Englanders, unlike their nationalism, is one of these terms, these protean terms that gets used and reused, but this is a very sectional nationalism, if you want to put it this way. And this nationalism, fully enunciated, became the ideological basis for the policies that would guide the Republicans during the Civil War and the ensuing decades. A second development also transformed the North, the rise of anti-slavery. Although my work argues for the primacy of economic change in understanding sectional conflict, I don't ignore the growth of anti-slavery and abolition and the abolition movement. Any understanding of these years must take such crusades into account. But the larger point is that abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison remained a small minority and spoke for no more than 5% of the northern population. Radicals including Charles Sumner and Salmon Chase had a broader following. These individuals agreed not to disturb slavery where it existed but advocated aggressive steps to speed its demise. But even taken together these two groups, abolitionists and radicals, comprised no more than 15% of the northern population. It's certainly a 15% to celebrate if we're looking back into history for heroes. But this relatively small group did not determine the policies of either the North or the Republican Party. In the mid-1850s, the Republican Party emerged based on these two overlapping constituencies, the individuals determined to develop the northern economy and the supporters of militant anti-slavery. Both sets of goals, economic development and anti-slavery, shaped the Republican platform. But there is little question of which was preeminent. The Republicans rejected abolition. Indeed, they went out of their way to assure the, the South that they would not disturb its institutions the Republicans also rejected radical demands for ending slavery in the District of Columbia, in the federal shipyards, or for checking the interstate slave trade and repealing the Fugitive Slave Law. Indeed, apart from a strong denunciation of slavery and an affirmation of the Declaration of Independence, a position most Northerners could agree with, the sole Republican anti-slavery demand was opposition to the extension of slavery in the West. This was an important demand but it was one as I've noted in the book and elsewhere that combined economic ends and anti-slavery goals. Many Republicans in fact insisted that the West be closed to all African Americans slave and free. Free free soil spoke to the North's self-interest and at its heart was the demand that Northern farmers not Southern planters control the West. At the same time Republicans in their 1856 and 1860 platforms set forth at the same time they set forth a broad set of economic demands including rivers and harbors improvements, a homestead act, a transcontinental railroad and higher tariffs, all part of the Republican platform. More broadly, the ascent of the Republicans signaled that the era of compromise had ended. A purely northern parted, which shared little common ground with the South and particularly with the Deep South had risen to prominence. The South too was changing but the pattern of change in the response to the sectional issues was strikingly different in the Deep South, the border states and the Upper South. We begin with the Deep South, the cotton states from South Carolina to Texas. And let's see if this is the Deep South or Lower South. And these are the states I'll be talking about. What changed the outlo- their outlook in the 1840s was the stiffening northern resistance, the expansion of slave territory, and the increasingly urgent need of southerners for new soils. Up through the Mexican War, which lasted from 1846 to 1848, Northern representatives, if grudgingly, had gone along with plans to gain new soils for slaves. That was evident in the Louisiana Purchase, the Missouri Compromise, the admission of Arkansas, and the war with Mexico. But in 1846, with the introduction of a measure called the Wilmot Proviso, a majority of Northern representatives, an overwhelming majority, made clear that opposition to yielding any... Made clear their opposition to yielding any additional soils. The emergence of the Republican Party in the mid 1850s only confirmed that determination. At the same time, this resistance emerged, the demand, particularly from the Deep South, for additional soils intensified. Southerners needed land for several reasons. New territories would make possible the addition of additional slave states and allow the South to preserve the balance of power in the Senate. Southerners also wanted to expand because they feared the danger of a growing slave society, slave population in a society that was hemmed in. Finally, by the 1840s, Southerners had begun to worry about the danger of soil exhaustion if they did not have new expanses to cultivate. Even within the Deep South, however, not all individuals and regions were equally concerned about the restrictions on growth. Virtually all white Southerners condemned free soilers, but those who lived in the northern reaches of the Deep South, including the northern counties of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, were more moderate and more reluctant to countenance extreme measures. This was the part of the Deep South more closely connected to the states to their north by an overland trade, a trade that grew dramatically in the dozen years before the war. It was also the part of the Deep South that raised the most grain. So this area, here, these gray-in areas are the areas of wheat production in the Deep South high wheat production in the Deep South. And that fostered a culture of small milling centers and artisan production. It was a part of the Deep South settled by migrants who had come south through the Appalachian Highlands and who who could trace family origins back to Scotland or Northern Ireland. These individuals condemned free soilers, but they felt they could continue to thrive in a more diversified economy, one that included a variety of crops, not just cotton, and they also leaned toward manufacturing. The hardliners, the fire eaters, came from the southern districts in these states, where there were few overland links with the north, where settlement came from the Atlantic coast, and often originally from the south of England. While the dividing lines were never cleanly drawn, north-south splits were evident in these states in their response to the crisis of 48-49. At mid-century, the loudest cries for firm measures came from the more southerly districts. And this is in 1851. And now the counties strongly supporting state rights. Unless you're right up front here, you can't see the print there. But the in areas are the counties the extremist areas. So even within the Deep South, there are divisions based on these economic and other concerns. The same divisions were true in the final secession crisis. And reality is a bit messy, but that's reality. And, but it's more or less a North-South division in Certainly in states like Georgia, Alabama, the area up here, which is the wheat-growing area settled by the northerners, is much more moderate. And the divisions over secession reflect these distinctions in these states. Why then did the Lower South secede? Because the leaders in each of these states feared that with the victory of Lincoln and the Republicans, their way of life rooted in slavery was doomed. You might ask whether this interpretation which highlights the defense of slavery isn't simply a restatement of the McPherson idealist approach. I'd answer only superficially. Rather, this interpretation grounds the Southern decision both temporally, because it shows that it didn't happen earlier when there was an era of compromise, and geographically. It's not the idealists talk about Southerners I'm speaking about a particular group for their own interests who do so. Secessionist further was much less apparent in the other two sections of the South, the border states in the upper South. These are the border states, Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. Since at least the 1830s, the border states had drawn closer to the northern economy. And in each of these, the percentage of slaves had declined steadily since around 1830. During both the mid-century crisis and the secession winter, the border states remained loyal to the Union. The four states of the upper South, these are Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas, were very much in the middle between those polarities. They had more slaves and larger plantations than the border states but they were also more involved in overland trade with the North than the Deep South. Unlike the Deep South these states did not consider Lincoln's election just cause for war. They seceded only after fighting began in April 1861 and states were forced to choose sides. The Deep South had done so between December and early February and these the Upper South waited until war came about. And like the Deep South, the Upper South was divided. As a rule, the areas areas dominated by small planners opposed secession, and those were planners held sway, favored the Confederacy. Kathy, we can put our shield on the uh, Okay. Finally, we turn to the war and its aftermath Reconstruction. The last two chapters of the book explore this era which is important for any understanding of the Republican Party and the consequences of the Civil War. The Republicans entered the war with two sets of goals, improving the conditions of African-American and strengthening the Northern economy. But the two were never of equal significance. Building the economy was always the more significant aim. The Republicans began the war with no immediate plans to assist African-Americans. Lawmakers individually and collectively made clear they would not disturb the South's institutions. Only after a year year of fighting did the outlook of mainstream Republicans change. It became clear the war would be a prolonged and bitter one and that the slaves were a valuable asset for the South. Even more important in precipitating a new approach were the tens of thousands of African Americans who fled to the Union lines as the Northern armies advanced. On January 1st, 1863, reflecting these new realities, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. The North now actively recruited blacks for the armed forces. And early in 1865, Congress confirmed the Emancipation Proclamation by approving and sending to the states the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery. The initial reluctance of the Republicans to assist African-Americans Contrast with the enthusiasm enthusiasm with which party members implemented their program of economic nationalism. Even before the war, Republicans secured a higher tariff. Once fighting began, Congress followed through on other promises made in the Republican platforms. Lawmakers approved the Transcontinental Railroad, a Homestead Act, rivers and harbors improvements, and land grants to create state universities. The need to finance the war created opportunities to expand this nationalist program. These steps included an income tax and the sale of bonds directly to the public. Two initiatives that brought a once distant government into many citizens' lives. The biggest step came in 1863 with the National Banking Act, which established a network of stable, well, seemingly stable, (laughs) financial institutions, as well as a uniform currency. which occurred? After the war, the Republicans, firmly in control of Congress, continued to pursue their twin goals, improving the lot of African Americans and strengthening the northern economy. But as early, building the economy remained more important. The Republicans stood by, for example, while blacks were forced into sharecropping and debt peonage. Only when unrepentant Southerners rejected demands for legal rights did the Republicans, and many of them with misgivings, agree to take firmer steps and enfranchise African Americans. The Republicans had little enthusiasm, however, for these new governments that went so far beyond their core values. By 1877, all troops were withdrawn from the South and racist white regimes regained power. The Reconstruction regimes were invariably short-lived. Compared to the half-hearted support for African Americans, the Republicans had no hesitation in promoting the growth of the northern economy and particularly of big business. The troops Congress removed from the south were sent west to clear natives from land that might be used for farming, grazing, and mining. Some of the soldiers were sent to northern cities to put down striking workers. Republicans raised tariff rates to unprecedented heights. At the same time, they repealed the income tax, the one progressive wartime tax. The Republican Congress appropriated lavish amounts for northern rivers and harbors, but the focus always remained on the North, even though the South had been harder hit by the war. And even during the brief period when Republican regimes dominated southern states, Congress refused to consider the needs of the former Confederate states. Increasingly, the Republican Party became the party of big business. Thus, the outcome of the Civil War, with the blacks free but subjugated and big business flourishing and protected, was not an aberration. Rather, was the logical outcome of the triumph of a party that had long been more devoted to the development of the North Than to improving the conditions of the less fortunate. To summarize, this talk, like my book, has argued that more than any other concern, the evolution of the northern and southern economies produced the civil war. The dominant party, the Republicans, shaped the world we have today. It helped create an economically powerful country, but one in which, despite the stirring events of this past campaign. Many blacks remain second class citizens. The retelling of the coming and the aftermath of the Civil War, this retelling of the coming and aftermath of the Civil War is hardly fashionable. Americans, like the people of most nations, cherish their myths. They like to believe, for example, that the American Revolution Pitted freedom loving colonists against tyrannical British. That's another book.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: They cherished the notion that the Civil War was all about freeing the slaves. But ultimately, myths are luxuries that no nation can afford. Economics, more than high moral concerns, produced the Civil War. Thank you. <laughs>